September Talking Magazine. As most of you... Shut up, Chuck. Good start. Good start, there we go. As most of you will know, that interruption came from Chuck Berry, who sadly died earlier this year. So, if you have no particular place to go for the next hour and a half, I hope we can keep you amused. And if he does that again, I'll kick him. Okay, this is the September... 2017 edition is always being recorded here in Colin Chance House, deep in the heart of Worcester, and my name is Barry Hurd. Stating the obvious, this spectacular can't be sent to you without the nice people who will copy this magazine onto those little sticks you get, and they are Janet Weaver and Carol Hurdle. I hope they're still the same. Are they, Duncan? They're still the same. Right. Round the table with me today are... Brian, Patrick and Terry. Uh, Patrick and Terry are new to this little team, so Patrick, tell us a bit about yourself. About myself? About yourself. Right, I'm uh, currently married (laughs) (laughs) and uh, have been for the last 43 years. And um, apart from that, nothing's happened in my life at all. That's (laughs) been the highlight and, and the low light and... A lot of heartache in between, Barry, I can tell you that. <laughs> but I think we're still tr- struggling through it. And, yeah. Um, yeah, he's going to cheer us all up tonight, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Terry? Well, like, like, I'm, I'm also married, but I can beat you on that more 60 years. We had our 60th uh, uh, last, year, last year, Very in actual fact. Very yeah. Yeah. So we're still talking. Do you think there's that's applaudable? Do you think? Sorry? Is that something to applaud? I don't know, it's I nothing to do with I, me. I, I yes, didn't okay, necessarily applaud yeah. it, no. It's, uh, yeah. However, yes. I mean, it was about 60 years after the first year, stopped talking to any, each other anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. carry on. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Right, sorry, Brian, you've done your bit before. Oh, of course, what I was going to say was I'm long retired, but I'm still trying to decide what to do when I grow up. <laughs> well done. You're, you're, you're uh, yes. an actor, though, aren't you? You enjoy acting. Oh, but not for many years, not seriously. No, but you still do a bit on the stage. A little bit. Yeah. And you like writing, don't you? A little bit. A little, a little bit. bit. Okay. I can't drag anything out of these people. No, no. And not to be forgotten, in the cupboard behind the big glass window, like a huge goldfish bowl, is our ever cheerful engineer, Techie Duncan Wynn. Bravo. He just shouted a hello, which you can't hear him. News since our last magazine. Where to start? Road traffic has hit record levels, according to the report I read. In the eye, actually. Vehicles drove over 325.1 million miles during the 12 months up to June. An increase of 1.4% on last year. 1.4% doesn't sound much, but it equals... uh, Four and a half billion miles, 
I would estimate that equals the amount of potholes that our poor drivers have to avoid on our highways every day. Here's an unusual story. A builder in Kent was charged with trying to fool people into having their roofs repaired. How, you might ask. How indeed. Apparently, while going up to see what condition potential clients' roofs were in, he smuggled a dead squirrel with him. Look what I found up there, he told the poor unsuspecting people as he came back down. Look what I found up there. It's a dead squirrel. It must have got in through a gap between the tiles. <laughs> it was grey, but someone saw red and had him arrested. Oh, that was oh, no, 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 it's funny. <laughs> that was in the eye as well, you know. Yes, indeed. You read it, did you? Yes. Right, one more. How about... Uh, just just for the listeners' uh, yes, go uh, on, clarification, go. the eye is a newspaper... Uh, that kind of took over from the independent newspaper, to, to, to my knowledge. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Well, yeah. the, the, uh, the independent yeah, just, went on to the Just internet. for those who might not know the, what the I is. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Okay. Don't pick me up any time, I don't <laughs> And the squirrel, uh, by the way, <laughs> was a grey squirrel. Oh, no, that's what I said. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a red squirrel. No, no, I said, I said it was a grey squirrel. <laughs> But someone saw red <laughs> and had him arrested. You're not listening, are you? You're thinking of all the funny things. <laughs> right, hold on. How about rabbit for dinner? This is funny. Don't interrupt, bro. This is great fun. You did. <laughs> How about a rabbit for dinner? After many sanctions imposed on Venezuela causing food shortages, President Nicolas Madero has launched Plan Rabbit. This promotes the idea of citizens breeding these tasty, bouncy, long-eared, delicious at home so they get enough animal protein. And President Madero, or Madero has asked his people to hop to it. Very good. <laughs> Brian, yes, you've got some dates, haven't you? Dates here? Yes, I have indeed. This is all September. These are all September dates of mat matters of great importance or less, depending upon your point of view. 21st of September, 1327, the death of Edward II, reputedly murdered by his jailers with a red-hot poker. Does it say how they did it? 22nd of September, 1735, Britain's very first Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, moved into Number 10 Downing Street. Very significant date, the 23rd of September, 1848, a date in infamy, some of us may think, chewing gum produced commercially for the first time. Mm. 24th of September, back in 1776, the first St. Ledger horse race at Doncaster, Yorkshire. 25th of September, 1818, was the date of the first transfusion of human blood performed at Guy's Hospital, London. 26th of September, 1580, the Golden Hind arrived back at Plymouth, having sailed round the world under the captaincy of Sir Francis Drake. He had, of course, plundered a few Spanish ships en route to keep morale high. 27th of September, 1888, came the first use of the name Jack the Ripper 
in an anonymous letter to the Central News Agency. And back in 1745, on the 28th of September, God Save the King was sung for the first time at London's Drury Lane Theatre. 29th of September, 1758, came the birth of Horatio Nelson. And on the 30th of September, 1938, misguided British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain says after meeting Hitler in Munich, I believe it is peace for our time. If I could add a rider to that, well, I do recommend you read Robert Harris's new book who will somewhat refute could I just and make, defend Chamberlain. Could I just make a remark regarding that Hitler reference that, that you made there? Um, I'm from Dublin originally. Uh, but I've lived over here since 1960. And a lot of people, I did a lot of research on this, and I was amazed at how many few people know this, that Hitler actually was an Irishman. And uh, in Ireland he was known as Spud Murphy. <laughs> and then he emigrated to Germany, and he called himself dictator. <laughs> Very good. Can you... Just pick a few out of there on your September, September dates. Yeah, just pick a few. Yes. Um, I found this one interesting. 1941, <coughs> the SS Patrick Henry is launched, becoming the first of more than 2,700 Liberty ships. And it's fairly recently that I, I became aware of what the function of the Liberty ships were. And these were primarily ships that were designed in America. They could be built, I think, in... A week or something like that. Were that Ten days, I think. It was something, yeah, very, very quickly. They were um, uh, used to ship uh, all the supplies necessary to, the, uh, to Britain to try and uh, keep the, uh, the Germans at bay. And they were monumentally uh, uh, responsible for, for eventually the defeat of, of Hitler, yeah. They were welded instead of ribbons. Is that what, is that what, that was speeded it up. Yeah. It was a phenomenal invention. Oh, God. And made so many, there's so many little, little stories like that yeah. in, in World War Two that uh, it, it, it'll never lose its fascination. Well, that's the thing about wars, isn't it? The advances made uh, scientifically, if you like, yes. they just leap ahead. That's right, yeah, because they have to. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. in the yes. First World War, we could barely fly aeroplanes. I mean, they came out. Yeah. Well, I still count. So well developed. Hence the same necessity of the mother of invention. That's right, oh. yes, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that leapt out of me. And then this one is at 1998, and Google Internet search engine re retroactively claims this date as its birthday. And considering that the huge amount of the world's population daily use uh, Google, um, and, and it's 1998 was the beginning date, it's, it's an astonishing uh, uh, success story, shall we say. Yeah. So, so many people came out with ideas for the internet, etc., or for computers. I, I seem to remember, you know, when it first started to really gain momentum, there was com uh, companies going on to the stock exchange, um, becoming a limited, not private. Uh, oh, what do you call them? Uh, you know, with shares, etc. Yeah. Sorry? Yes, go on. Yeah, publicly. Publicly, that's the word, yeah. Um, yeah there public. was sort of one after another just coming. I just wonder, you know, if any of them still exist. Mm. I mean, we know right. the popular ones these days. 
Um, anyway, have you got any more, Patrick? You want to read or um, go to Terry? Yes, or? the uh, uh, the Physics Journal in 1905, uh, the Physics Journal Annalen der Physics received Albert Einstein's paper. Um, which introduced the equation E equals MC squared. Mm. And uh, that was the first intimation of it in 1905. And the paper, interestingly, was called Does the Inertia of a Body Depend Upon Its Energy Content? They're just going to launch um, a triangular in space, aren't they? A triangle to, to prove it, whether it's actually 100% right or not. Well, I can, okay. in my case, if my, body, <laughs> it could, if my body is inert, uh, I have very little energy being used, I have to say that. <laughs> if that's what he's referring Outstanding to. Outstanding proof. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Terry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got births and deaths on, the, on this page here. Looking at births, although he died as well, Gordon Honeycomb died born in 30, 1936, but he died in 2015. Alvin Stardust, born in 1942, and he died in 2014. Diane Abbott, she's not dead yet, but she's born in 1953 and classified as English journalist and politician. Journalist, yeah. Shadow Secretary of State <laughs> for International Development, yeah. Peter Sellers with an A, this is not Peter Sellers because I also thought he was dead, but Peter Sellers, mm. American actor, director, and screenwriter. Yeah, mm. yeah that threw me. Yeah. I must have. Yeah, yeah I, th one, yeah. I thought oh, that Peter Sellers isn't through this. And then we also Gwyneth Paltrow, she was born in 1972, around about this time of the year. She's, she's an indicated as an American actress, a blogger, and a businesswoman. I think a lot of bloggers. Looking at deaths, just a quickies. Engelbert Humperdinck, German composer, oh, German composer, that one, yeah, born 18, 1854. He died in the singer, the, 
he brought with him some colonists from the settlement on Roanoke Island, and these colonists brought with them tobacco, maize, and potatoes. Rather bizarrely, tobacco was seen as good for your health, whereas potatoes were viewed with great suspicion. <laughs> but the use of tobacco by this time was well known on the continent. The Spaniard Nicolas Monades had written a report into tobacco, translated into English by John Frampton in 1577, entitled of the tobacco and of his great virtues, which recommended its use for the relief, amongst other things, of toothache, falling fingernails, worms, halitosis, lockjaw, and even cancer. In 1586, the sight of the colonists puffing away on their pipes started a craze at court. It's said that in 1600, Sir Walter Raleigh tempted Queen Elizabeth I to try smoking. This was copied by the population as a whole, and by the early 1660s the habit was commonplace and starting to cause concern. On one occasion when Raleigh was indulging in his newfound nicotine habit, a manservant of his, believing him to be on fire, threw a bucket of water over him <laughs> in an attempt to save his master's life. It's interesting to think, but before smoking became accepted in this country, what did people think when they heard about it? They might, well, this might give you an idea. This is Bob Newhart imagining what a telephone call, this has got to be hard to believe, a telephone call from Raleigh in America to his English agent here at home. And this, the, he, he thinks that the conversation might have gone something like this. What is it this time, Walt? You, you got another winner for us, uh, do you? <laughs> tobacco. <laughs> What's tobacco, Walt? It, it's a kind of leaf. <laughs> and you bought 80 tons of it. <laughs> now, let me get this straight now, Walt. You, you bought 80 tons of leaves? Put it in a pipe, 
or you can shred it up and put it on a piece of paper and roll it up. <laughs> don't, don't tell me, Walt. Don't, don't tell me. <laughs> I like Bob Newhart. Oh, now, he's not dead yet, you know. No, I know. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. oh, yeah, absolutely. Although he was on the um, Big Bang Theory. Oh. If anyone ever watches Big Bang Theory. Right, uh, Patrick, you got something about um, driving instructors yes. and the history <laughs> of when driving instructors started in this country. Um, guess what might be coming later? <laughs> the. Um this, this kind of a joint history of uh, the introduction of cars and 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 uh, and driving instruction, but um, historically driving instruction always has always been a had always been a cottage industry, um, albeit inside a motor vehicle moving at twenty to thirty miles an hour, pretty much similar to today. Dry, driver training probably began as a real form of a commercial venture in Great Britain about 1910, when a number of driving schools and training organisations opened the doors. The first recorded school was the Pilot School of Motoring of North London, now long since defunct. However, launched just after this in South London in October 1910 was the British School of Motoring. The proprietor was a Peckham doctor's son, Hugh Roberts of Clapham. Soon after setting up in business, he moved to the centre of London where he opened his ground floor offices in Coventry Street on the corner with Leicester Square. Later on, he was to rent out a floor of the premises to the newly formed Motor Vehicle Organisation, which was called the Automobile Association. And it was not long before this body too had to move to larger premises, eventually ending up 
in Basingstoke where it is now. Uh, British School of Motoring always also moved fairly soon afterwards into premises at 102 Sydney Street, Chelsea, where they remained until 1982, and it doesn't say where they're currently headquartered. However, in the early days, the intentions of all driving school owners were to encourage those who had bought motor cars to learn how to handle them, and of course to convert their carriage drivers and footmen into chauffeurs. I'm just making a, an observation about this because this appears that people uh, bought cars and then learned how to drive them rather than the That's other way around now, isn't it? It's strange, isn't it? As the 20th century developed, motor car ownership rapidly extended and learning to drive became a solitary, occasional and extremely unofficial affair. Car dealers sold cars and quite often their salesmen would take new purchases out for an hour or two to explain the basic principles of handling their new toy. Most of the training as such was concerned with the complexities of starting the vehicle, which would have been the old starting handle. Yeah, oh, the good old days. Oh, yeah. uh, well, I, I do. Right Sadly right missed. Right <laughs> <shy>. yeah. <laughs> and then learning how to steer, followed by many miles of trial and error experimentation with gear levers and clutches. No wonder chauffeurs were called warmer uppers. Someone had to do the dirty work. Learning how to stop was quite easy. If any driver failed to do any of the above things properly, the vehicle usually stopped of its own accord. However, on occasions, new owners just relied on the presence of other vehicles or road users or any solid piece of street furniture to help them stop, including the occasional pedestrian, presumably. On the other hand, learning road procedure was a totally different affair. If boats had a rule that steam must give way to sail, no such rule uh, obtained on the road. Steam, or its successor, the infernal combustion engine, uh, gave way to nothing unless that something was bigger or more substantial <laughs> than itself. Once underway, nothing would convince a driver to pull up unless it was to his advantage. White lines, give way signs and halt at major road ahead traffic signs were still only glimmers in the eyes of our parliamentary and civil service masters. Road procedures in those days could be simply summed up as keep the wheels on the ground and look where you are going. Yeah, Bob, Bob Newhart uh, said when the driving instructor set out for work in the morning, they never knew whether they would get home that night. Here's a clip from probably his most famous sketch, the driving instructor. Now, I'd like to have you a picture, if you would. This is a car. I'm the driving instructor, and seated next to me is a woman driver. How do you, how do? You do? Uh, you're, you're Mrs. Uh, Webb, is that right? Uh, oh, I see you've had one lesson already. Uh, who was the instructor on that, Mrs. Webb? Mr. Adams. I'm sorry, here it is, Mr. Adams. Uh, just let me read ahead and kind of familiarize myself with, with the case. Um, how fast were you going when Mr. Adams jumped from the car? <laughs> 775. <laughs> and, and, and where was that? In, in your driveway. Mr. Adams had gotten in the lesson. Back, backing out. 
I see you were banking out at, at 75, and, and that's when he, that's when he jumped. Uh, did he cover starting the car? And the other way of stopping. Uh, what, what's the other way of stopping? Thro throwing it in reverse. That, that's right. Oh, that would do it. You're right. That would do it. Um, all right. Uh, you want you want to start the car? Uh, Mrs. Webb, you just turned on the lights. You want to you want to start the car? It, they all look alike, don't they? <laughs> they I, I don't know why they design them that way. Uh, all right, let, let's pull out into traffic. Uh, now, what's the first thing we're going to do before we pull out into traffic? Uh, what did Mr. Adams do before he let you pull out into traffic? Well, I mean, besides praying, let's say. <laughs> No, what I had in mind was checking the rear view mirror. You, you see, we always want to check the rear... Don't fall out! <laughs> uh, uh, please don't cry. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but there was this bus, Mrs. Webb. Uh, all right, uh, the, lane, the lane is clear now. Uh, you, you, you want to pull out? Oh, uh, no, that, that wasn't uh, bad at all. You might try it a little slower uh, next time. Um, all right, let's get up a bit more speed and, and gradually ease it, ease it into second. Can I just say that my wife tried that alternative method of stopping? <laughs> we had a Vauxhall Victor, I think it was, which had a steering column gear change oh, one, yeah. and th with four gear, uh, three gears in reverse. She went, we moved off, she went nicely into one, into two, into three, into reverse. <laughs> and I looked down to see if the gearbox had come up through the floor. <laughs> it does stop the car and it also goes back. It's amazing, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Brian, sorry, excuse me. Okay. Uh, Brian, Brian's just got a couple of things. Oh, He's well, going, one or two things. Before yes. we go into the break okay. that nobody knows we have. <laughs> um, I hope the name, I wonder if the name Will Rogers means anything to you. Will Rogers, 1879-1935. He was born in Cherokee Indian Territory, the son of a successful rancher, cattleman and banker. He was known as the Indian Cowboy and became the best-loved American of his time. He was an expert horseman, learned to lasso from an Indian, starred in Wild West shows, then on Broadway and in vaudeville. In 1918, Rogers went to Hollywood and was soon appearing in silent cinema and then, with the advent of sound, became an even bigger star. By 1934, he was voted the most popular male actor in Hollywood and was also a brilliant broadcaster and an excellent writer. He even served as mayor of Beverly Hills, but tragically died in a plane crash near Point Barrow, Alaska, in 1935. Throughout his career, he was renowned and increasingly famous for his homespun philosophy and comments upon politics and politicians and history and so forth. Some examples. My ancestors didn't come over here on the Mayflower. They met the boat. <laughs> I never make jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. There's no trick in being a humorist when you have the whole government working for you. If we got one-tenth of what was promised to us in these acceptance speeches, there wouldn't be any inducement to go to heaven. Everything is changing. 
People are now taking the comedian seriously and the politicians as a joke. Now look here, if stupidity got us into this mess, why can't it get us out of it? Time for one more on a more serious note. Yeah, something. Well, that's fine. This is only another two or three minutes. I thought it'd be worth, while we're in America, reminding ourselves of a very famous speech given by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in January 1941, which in many ways feel, I feel is still very relevant today. It's Roosevelt's famous Four Freedoms speech to Congress. Mr. President and Mr. Speaker and members of the 77th Congress, I address you, the members of this new Congress, at a moment unprecedented in the history of the Union. I use the word unprecedented because at no previous time has American security been as seriously threatened from without as it is today. In the future days which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings, which will secure to every nation a healthy, peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbour anywhere in the world. This is no vision of a distant millennium. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. That kind of world is the very antithesis of the so-called new order of tyranny where dictators seek to create with the crash of a bomb. Well, that could be, could be today's reason. Exactly. Terry, uh, Terry's going to finish off this first half, I think. Yeah, well, um, with, how long would you be there? It only seems like a second to you, but we, in that second, we drink coffee, eat biscuits, and things yeah. like that. It's surprising yeah. what we can get done. <laughs> well, I'm changing the tone a, a bit, unfortunately, but it, it's a bo- from a book that Lord Longford created a long time ago, a book of accidents and misfortunes. Mm. Various uh, well-known people. Prue Leith, this is one from Prue Leith. I have to confess... An interest there because my son used to work for Prulith at one of her uh, restaurants. Anyway, catering is a hazardous business. I once sat with 200 other guests at a a dinner at a city livery hall, confidently awaiting the pheasant casserole I had cooked, which I knew was perfection. When it came, it tasted of neat turpentine. We'd had the larder painted that day and I'd left the pots of cooling pheasant in it all night. Another time, dining in a city boardroom with one of the customers, I saw my host digging in the salad with a fork. He pulled out of it first a piece of string, 
to which was attached a long thin metal chain then finally out popped a rubber bath plug <laughs> that was when I operated from a bed sitter and used to wash the lettuce in the basin <laughs> we've served salmon mousse for pudding thinking it was plum fool we've delivered cocktail bits to the wrong company who gratefully ate them before we could get them back we've given bacon canopies to a rabbi one day our delivery van door flew open in in Pond Street depositing a dinner for Beaverbrook newspapers in the gutter we've dropped all the knives and forks for a party on a, on a barge into the Thames we, I've left live lobsters destined for Princess Margaret in the tube I've dried the icing on an almost forgotten wedding cake with a hairdryer but my worst catering accident was stabbing my sous chef I slipped at the range holding a sharp filleting knife in an effort to save myself, I flung my arms upward, and the next thing I knew, there he was, clutching his thigh, with blood running through his fingers. Pandemonium. The restaurant manager ordered the barman to give the poor chap a brandy. The barman, who fortunately knew his first aid better, refused to do so, so they were both off in a corner, mutinying, threatening dismissal and shouting. As for me, I admit to my undying shame that I had gone into the cloakroom to be sick. The unfortunate sous chef was attended by the kitchen staff, all shouting and arguing. One of them wrapped a far from sterile tea towel round his leg. When I recovered my senses, the poor man, pale as death, insisted on pulling up his pants because I was a woman. Arguments about tourniquets, ambulances, <laughs> hospitals and tetanus injections went on, I'm sorry to say, for almost 20 minutes before the victim was taken off to hospital. At no time did I give a thought to our poor customers. Orders were simply forgotten. At one point, a waiter mildly pointed it out. Table three has been waiting for half an hour just to be rebuked with, Good God, man, there's a man bleeding to death here and you talk about crepe Suzette? <laughs> the next day, I received a letter of complaint. A customer had to wait 20 minutes for hollandaise sauce and when it arrived, it was curdled. The waiter had said, Well, sir, the chef cut his finger. The customer was beside himself. Firstly, the chef had no business cutting his finger and secondly, if he had, what kind of an excuse was that? The waiter had reasonably enough been reluctant to say, well, it was the boss that stabbed the second cook and the rest of them are rioting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there we go. Four minutes left. I can give a little short one, which I think yeah, I, I rather then. like this. It's I'll, sh I'll, even I'll shorter. Give this one it's Dennis, Dennis Norton. Dennis Norton, as you would expect. <laughs> as you expect, Dennis Norton is uh, quite amusing. And this is, again, accidents. All my own minor accents have been of too distressing a nature to be treated light-heartedly, ranging as they do from spinning myself clean off a swivel chair to spilling hot coffee on my lap at a Yudis picnic, picnic. Sorry. However, I do have a friend who was once run over by a mobile library van, and he swears that as he lay in the road, roadway groaning, a lady leaned out of the driver's window and said, "Shh." <laughs> Right, until this mythical break, we got about two or three minutes. So, um, Patrick was talking about this earlier, and I happen to have the statistics here. Yesterday was the day that most babies are born. Ah, ah yes, yes, yes. The twenty-sixth. This is the twenty-sixth of September. Mm, Christmas. Sorry, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So everyone's at it <laughs> around Christmas time. Uh, what else have we got? They find the, um, they find the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's about uh, there. There is a, there's approximately one thousand eight hundred 
uh, daily births, which um, spread out yeah. the various. Um, the worst day for births is the 28th of December. Uh, strange, uh, that, that average out about 357. I was born on the 29th, I missed that. <laughs> is that the lowest when you mean the worst? Uh, no, no, I think lowest. it's just about the lowest. lowest yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we got uh, September the 25th is quite high, September the 24th, 27th, etc. Then it goes into October. Um, and then the, the, the least popular are the 26th of December, 25th of December, 1st of January, uh, 27th of December, and so on and so on and so on. So it's all around Christmas time. Yeah. It seems to be conception yeah. is at well, its greatest. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, a lovely jo- way to give your wife a present. Yeah. Or your girlfriend. Or if you've forgotten the present. <laughs> yeah. Do you want a one-minute anecdote? Yeah, yeah, anecdote. We've got one minute till break. Okay. Yes, okay. This is another American story by an American against himself. And it's the story of a few years ago, an American defence technical expert was invited to come over to London and address the Joint Defence Committee of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And flying over the Atlantic, he was very excited about the whole concept, and he turned to his wife and said, My dear, I reckon that not even in your wildest dreams could you have ever imagined that one day we'd be flying across the Atlantic for me to address the Joint Committee of the British Houses of Parliament. What a thing. Silence for about 30 seconds. And his wife leant across and in a soft, gentle voice said, Well, honey... I am rather sorry to have to tell you this, but uh, as it happens, you never feature in my wildest dreams. (laughs) 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 Okay, now we come to the Wright brothers, and Patrick has a little story about them. Before we go on to the last clip from good old Bob Newhart. Yes, this is um, the story about the the original flight. Um, it's the first powered flight by the Wright brothers, uh, Orville Wright and Wilbur Wright, who, if my memory serves me right, were bicycle manufacturers, just going from memory. But this happened in 1903 in the US. In camp at Kill Devil's Hill, Wilbur won a coin toss and made a three-second flight attempt on December the 14th, 1903, stalling after takeoff and causing minor damage to the flyer, which is the name of the aircraft. Uh, the aircraft, of course, and in that form we would term a, a very primitive uh, form of uh, aircraft. In a message to their family, Wilbur referred to the trial as having only partial success, stating the power is ample and but for a trifling error due to lack of experience with this machine and this method of starting, the machine would undoubtedly have flown beautifully. Following repairs, the Wrights finally took to the air on December 17, 1903, making two flights each from level ground into a freezing headwind gusting to 27 miles per hour. The first flight by Orville at 10.35am of 120 feet 
in 12 seconds at a speed of only six miles per hour over the ground was recorded in a famous photograph. <coughs> the next two flights covered approximately 175 and 200 feet by Wilbur and Orville respectively. Their altitude was about 10 feet above the ground. The following is Orville Wright's account of the final flight of the day. See, all this could be describing Ryanair today. Wilbur started the fourth and last flight at just about 12 o'clock. The first few hundred feet were up and down as before. But by the time 300 feet had been covered, the machine was under much better control. The course for the next four or five hundred feet had but little undulation. However, when out about 800 feet, the machine began pitching again and in one of its darts downwards struck the ground. The distance over the ground was measured to be 852 feet. The time of the flight was 59 seconds. The frame supporting the front rudder was badly broken, but the main part of the machine was not injured at all. We estimated that the machine could be put in condition for flight again in about a day or two. The first, uh, the Wright brothers' first powered flight coincidentally happened on the 121st anniversary of the first unmanned test flight by the Montgolfier brothers. They had made it with a balloon. Apparently their balloon went out of control because it had so much lift. This was unmanned, I think I said that. Because it had so much lift and flew over a mole without guidance from the ground. Sadly, when it did land, it was set upon by a passerby who probably scared to death by its sudden appearance from the heavens, destroyed it. <laughs> Can you imagine a bloody great balloon landing next to you? No, no, never mind. Anyway, uh, the, the, the Wright brothers probably wondered if they could make the thing fly more than 100 yards, um, how they could make money from the, their great invention. And here's Bob Newhart with a few ideas for them. Listen, uh, I talked to the guys here at the office and we're real excited about this thing. Uh, we really think you got something. Well, uh, we, we got a couple questions. Um, I, th I think you pretty much agree with us uh, that the, the only way to make any loot on it is, is, to, is to start booking passengers as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we may pick up a little on the baggage gimmick, you know, if we, if we set it low enough, but not enough to, to make it worthwhile. Well, I, I got a couple questions. Now, all the pictures we got show either you or Wilbur uh, lying on the wings. Now, when we start booking passengers, uh, well, they will, huh? Well, uh, I mean, if we're going to cloud them for 75, 80 bucks to the coast, you know, I don't know how they'll go for lying on the wings like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 how, how many could you handle, do you suppose? Five on either side, that's top. Huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's your end of it. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Uh, listen, is there any way of putting a John on it? <laughs> well, this Jerry came up with an idea, which, which I kind of like. Uh, maybe we could set up a little snob appeal thing and, and get, you know, uh, maybe two classes, one with a John, one without. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. It, well, uh, right away, we got two problems. Uh, obviously, uh, how the hell would they get back to it? <laughs> 
And secondly, you're going to be flying over cities, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, some poor clown walking down the street, you know. Well, let's put it this way, bad press, you, you see what I mean? Uh, well, you, you, you think, it, listen, how are things coming on the plane? Uh, at Kitty Hawk last week, how did it go? Uh, 105 feet, huh? That's all. Do the, do the 12 guys still have to push it down the hill? They, they, they do, huh? Well, see, that's going to cut our time to the coast. I mean, if we got to land every 105 feet. All right, well, listen, you work on it and, and get back to me. All right, I'll be talking to you, Orville. Goodbye. <laughs> and that was Bob Newhart. It's remarkable, I think. I think he's about getting on for 90 now, isn't he? He's still, still going. Um, Terry, you got one. I've got, on. little, I've got a little story, and I'm going back to my book again with uh, oh, yeah. Lord Longford's accidents, yeah. and it's, it, it could follow. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like to do with aircraft anyway. We got <laughs> aircraft there, and here we go. It's, this one is Je one of Jeremy Thorpe, if anybody rem remembers Jeremy Thorpe. Yeah, he murdered somebody. Yeah, he did, yeah. No, anyway, during the 1970... Oh, Sorry. During the 1970 general election, I, that's Jeremy Thorpe, flew into Birmingham by helicopter at 9.15 in the morning and landed on a football field. Although the rotor blades were still whirring, a crowd of about 1,500 surged towards the helicopter. My first wife, Caroline, screamed and pointed to a tuft of human hair blowing across the field. Having scalped a member of my audience, there was no doubt that he or she would be dead. My reactions were painful and detailed. Should I call off campaigning for the day as a sign of respect and mortification, or even for two days? Should I visit an next of kin? Could the inquest be put off until after polling day? Presumably the press would do nothing else but make constant repetition references to the accident. Likewise, I suppose that I should have to shoulder all the blame and be told in the first place I should never have travelled by helicopter during an election. We both emerged rather green to look for the corpse. This time the fates were kind and we discovered a young lady who had survived and the wig was trampled underfoot. <laughs> cool. Brian, you've got uh, a moving from the air to the sea. A little bit of background history about the last HMS Worcester, which was ordered back in April 1918, launched in November, October 1919. And then later on, after the war, service with the fleet in 1922, and eventually was decommissioned and transferred to a reserve fleet, placed in reserve at Portsmouth through to the 1930s. Of course, 1939 was selected for recommissioning as the fleet mobilised. After we entered the war, Worcester was prepared for war service, recommissioned that month and reported for duty at Portsmouth for convoy, escort and patrol operations in the English Channel and the southwestern approaches. Remained in those duties until May 1940, when, of course, the German invasion of the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg and France began. And Worcester then played a major part when she was assigned to Operation Dynamo, the evacuation of the Allied troops from Dunkirk. Worcester made six trips to the Dunkirk beaches and transported a total of 4,350 troops to the United Kingdom, 
but suffered some damage in an air attack on the 27th of May 1940. A month or so under repairs, returned to service based at Harwich for convoy escort and patrol operations in the North Sea. Then was transferred later on that year to Western Approaches Command and continued on convoy defence duties in the Western Approaches until the end of 1940. Then, in the following January, was transferred back to North Sea Convoy Escort and Patrol work and in March 41, she and a fellowship were escorting the convoy FS-29 seeming south along the east coast and they became they came under air attack on the 6th of March. They tried to chase an e-boat, but the two destroyers couldn't make contact with it. Unfortunately, that e-boat was, had been serving as a decoy for the first German torpedo bloat for boat flotilla, which attacked the convoy when Worcester and Whitshed had been lured too far away to intervene. No further incidents until 1942, when the flotilla, including Worcester, was put on alert for the possibility that the major German battle cruisers Scharnhorst and Gneisau and the heavy cruiser Prinz Eugen would attempt a breakout from Brest in German-occupied France. They were conducting exercises to practice for this eventuality when they received word that the German ships has indeed steamed to Germany via the English Channel, known as the Channel Dash. Mm -hmm. During her unsuccessful torpedo attack, though, Worcester was hit by 11-inch shells from the Prince Jürgen and suffered 26 killed or mortally wounded and 45 injured. Severe structural damage to Worcester also in the flooding the boiler room and causing her to go dead in the water. The surviving crew managed to put out the fires and get her back underway, and she did manage to proceed to the United Kingdom with the aid of tugs for necessary repairs. Repairs were major, she didn't return to service till September 1942 and joined the home fleet at Scarpa Flow up in the Orkney Islands to support the Arctic convoys. She was deployed with several other ships for what was known as Operation Gearbox in which the ships established a refuelling base right up on Spitsbergen to help allied, ship, allied ships on the Arctic run. And later on, that few months later, she joined convoy QP-14 on a return to Scotland. Remained with the home fleet through December 1942, and in 43, January no less, she was released from duty from the home fleet, returned to the destroyer flotilla at Harwich, and carried on working in the North Sea, escorting convoys and interception patrols, particularly targeting German e-boats. She continued her escort and interception operations until 23rd of December 43, when she detonated a mine in the North Sea near Smith's Knoll. Now this mine destroyed her stern structure. She had to be towed to Great Yarmouth, was under repair and survey then until April 1944, when she was deemed then beyond economical repair 
and was finally decommissioned. Did um, it just remind me just all that history that Brian um, uh, read out there about a couple of years ago? Uh, I don't know if you can remember it, but um, when a survey was done and they found that they had three uh, members of the uh, Worcester Regiment uh, who survived and took part in the Normandy landing. And um, there was a substantial uh, fundraising scheme put throughout the county and a lot of money was collected. And the decision was that the uh, money would be distributed to these three survivors who were quite elderly at the time. They had a gala meal at the Guild Hall and the mayor was there and he was doing the presentation. And he said, gentlemen, three men took part in one of the most valiant efforts of World War II, the landing at the beaches of Normandy. And we have a substantial amount of money that we are uh, empowered to distribute between the three of you. And we've decided to, the fairest way to do it is you choose whichever part of your body you would like measured. Uh, we'll give you £1,000 per inch. So the first man who's got quite a piece by this time in his age, he says, you'll measure my chest. And so they measured the chest and he got £44,000. And the second man was asked what he won. And he had, he had taken his delight in, in, in ale in his retirement and uh, he had expanded his waist quite a lot and he said uh, if you measure my waist and they measure the waist and he got uh, 50 inches, 50,000 pounds and the third man says measure my heel to my big toe so he bent down to measure it and he says where's your big toe? He says in Normandy (laughs) 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 but these are um, excerpts from a newspaper which are uh, statements made um, both statements are made by um, Gaffs. Gaffs. <laughs> there, yeah, right, Gaffs. All right, yeah. By the Duke of Edinburgh, who uh, has uh, a, a, himself uh, recently announced his retirement after many uh, valiant years of, of, of service. Um, but he was quite well known uh, of saying things that might be considered politically incorrect uh, in, in today's world. And uh, I've got a page here of them. I'll just read out a couple of them. Um, but uh, he... Um, uh, let me see. Just, oh, yeah. He he met when they had these royal variety performances. Of course, they'd, uh, the royal family would be taken backstage and uh, and introduced to all the performers. And he was introduced then to uh, to Tom Jones. And he the Duke of Edinburgh says to him, "What do you gargle with pebbles?" And um, of course, Tom Jones was at the beginning of his uh, an, an illustrious uh, career at that time. Um, uh, he told uh, Elton John after he had sold his uh, Watford FC based uh, theme based Aston Martin in 2011 oh it's you that owns that ghastly car we often see it when driving to Windsor Castle so he didn't care (laughs) who who he upset and and again, of Sir Elton's performance at the 73rd Royal Variety Show, he turned to someone and said, I wish you'd turn the microphone off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, and uh, I wouldn't could sympathise with, with, with a lot of these. Um, uh, I haven't had time to actually peruse them prior to this, so I'm just, just going to quickly uh, find the, the ones that are... Let, let, let's say they're all worth repeating. 
Um, well, I'll tell you what, yeah. let's go to Terry. He can read okay. his bit and then yeah. come back to you. You can select a few. Yes, okay. Uh, uh, Terry, you've got uh, everyone knows the film Zulu with Michael Caine. That's right. But yeah. um, this is, I, I beg your pardon, Worcester people, but this is about Hereford. Mm. I know it's next door, and I know you all sort of think it's about 50 years behind. And sadly, I have to agree. But nevertheless, this is about one of the poor chaps that uh, volunteered for the army. He was in uh, Rorke's Drift at the time 4,000 Zulus attacked, and he won a VC. Yeah. But this is a sad end, I'm afraid. It is, it is really, yes. Uh, it's a hero at one of the most famous battles in British military history. Robert Jones now lies at rest in a Herefordshire village. Uh, this article recalls his courage and examines a bid to prove that the coroner was wrong about his uh, a suicide. Um, when he was only 19, Private Robert Jones of the 2nd Battalion South Wales Borderers won his VC. He was one of 11 men awarded the medal after the famous Battle of Rorke's Drift Mission Station in Natal when a small contingent of British soldiers were attacked by 4,000 Zulus. In the thick of the conflict, Jones gallantly held a hut which contained sick and wounded colleagues. During this heroic defence, he was shot and suffered four wounds from the uh, Zulu spears. In 1898, far, far away from Natal, Jones received another blast from a gun and fell dead in the garden of Crossway's Peter Church, which was the home of Mr. Dillahay, who employed Jones as a farm labourer. An inquest was held at the nearby Boaten Arms under the deputy coroner, and the jury returned a verdict of suicide while temporarily insane. After hearing evidence about the way the gun had been held and the type of wound inflicted, it had also been stated that he had been behaving peculiarly. He had been involved earlier. In the, in, early in the week, in a slight tiff with his wife Elizabeth over the fact he had been sent home drunk from the Boughton Arms by the policeman's wish. But he had never threatened to take his life, and the night before his death he had eaten a hearty supper. On the fateful morning he had downed two cups of tea. <coughs> Louisa Wellers, the laundrymaid who found Jones's body, recalled how he had earlier said good morning to her when he went to fetch his employer's gun, something he frequently did in order to go shooting birds. What really happened to the hero of yesteryear, we will never really know, but it is more than likely that had the tragedy occurred earlier, uh, earlier today, a coroner would record an open verdict. Today's inquest do not jump to conclusions, and they will not presume suicide without concrete evidence. But then, convinced that Jones died as a result of an accident, is the long-standing vicar of Peter Church Preparatory John de la Tour Davis, who has examined the evidence and campaigned to have the suicide verdict quashed. Not squashed. He claims that a vital piece of evidence was overlooked. Jones was carrying a box-lock gun that could unintentionally be triggered if suddenly jarred. <coughs> Preparatory Davis said... It is feasible that Jones tripped on Crossway's flagstone path, causing a jolt with fatal consequences. Some years ago, he sent a photocopy of the Hereford Times account of the inquest to the then Lord Chief Justice, requesting that the suicide verdict be overturned. Lord Chief Justice 
Widgley replied that it would not be possible to change the verdict after so many years had elapsed, but his obvious interest in the cutting and his letter's wording provided perhaps a nuance hinting at sympathy with the appeal. One thing is certain, however, Jones's undoubted heroism in a distant land would always transcend the mystery and manner of his death. So there we are. Okay. Well, as for a quiz, um, uh, we're going to have a bit of music, a few pieces of music, which we pay about uh, half a minute of, and um, then I'll give you a couple of seconds to think about it, and then we'll ask the team round the table if they know who it is and what it's oh. called. Ha! Okay. So listen carefully. Here's the first one. Hopefully. And here's the first one, he said, hopefully. There we go. That's the first one. A few seconds for you to think about it, then I'll ask around the table if anybody knows who it is or what the song was called. Two, one, anybody? No, pleasant enough. <laughs> oh, nobody at all. It was, it was Brian Adams. I mean, don't, does anyone listen to, to that sort of modern music? No. No. No? no. no? They're all classical, are you? Yes. No. I brought the wrong <laughs> CD. Okay. Well, it's Brian Adams with Everything I Do. And it was one of the longest number ones in the 90s, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, Canadian, I think, isn't it? Uh, yeah, he's Canadian. Yeah, he's very good, yeah. Yeah, he's good. good. No, you see, you, you, come on, you've given it away now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you do, you do listen. Oh, right, we'll have one more, then we'll um, have Brian. What have you got for us, Brian, next? A variety of things, and I'll also tell you a little anecdote against myself about music. If oh, you'd OK, like right. that. we'll have one more anyway. Yeah. So, so. That's not what you think about this. I think it's funny. Okay, you've had a few seconds. Go on. Put, put us out of our misery, well, Barry. I'm going to take a wild guess. Yeah, go on. Al Jolson. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you get? <laughs> um, let's not give you a clue. He wasn't black. Oh, no, it was Al Jolson. No, was he a black tongue? No, no, he, 
Yes, he was one of the... Temporarily, yes. But he was the first... Was it the first spoken music? The jazz singer. The jazz singer, Oh, God, yes. That's our next quiz question. It's one of the most wonderful movies ever made, in my view, The Jazz Singer, with him depicting the story. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. And he is playing... It was the first picture and sound. yeah, yeah. But he, his movement, where everyone at the time stood still, it was a very formal way of saying, it was a formal stance. You yeah. stood. I mean, he might have a hand on chest. But he moved like a, uh, uh, like a jazz man. He, he, oh, yeah. His body moved uh, like a precursor of, of Michael Jackson almost. Yeah. It, it, quite astonishing, really. Yeah. Worth seeing. Going back... Put our listeners out of it. Yes, on for who that was. <laughs> that was... Cracking up. <laughs> yes, that figures. By Nick Lowe. Okay. Really? Really? Right. Oh. Well, I was going to say this story against myself. Many, many years ago, I was at a party trying to impress a young lady in conversation, getting on quite well, and suddenly she said to me, Well, then, um, who's your favourite group? And rather unwisely, of course, I said, That's a tricky one. I shall have to think about that. I think if I'm honest, I think it would have to be the Amadeus String Quartet, <laughs> uh, which, of course, didn't go down very well. But another lady with her chap in the corner of the room said, oh, you're into classical music. Don't you just love Dietrich Fischer-Diskau singing German Lieder? And I hesitated and said, well, if I'm absolutely honest, I have to confess, um, I'm not all that fond of the solo human voice. Quick as a flash, the first girl says, of course, unless it be your own. (laughs) (laughs) Collapse of stout party. (laughs) A few jokes, two or three jokes, two or three jokes. Okay. Let's go around the table, a few jokes from everybody. Penguin walks into a bar, goes to the counter, says to the bartender, have you seen my brother? The bartender says, well, I don't know. What does he look like? (laughs) Panda walks into a bar, gobbles down some beer nuts, pulls out a gun, fires it in the air, heads for the door. Hey, says the panda, what's going on? The panda yells back, I'm a panda, look up on Google. Sure enough, there it is, panda, a tree-climbing mammal with distinct black and white colouring, eats, shoots and leaves. (laughs) Burglar breaks into a house. Starts shining his light around looking for valuables. Something catches his eye. He's reaching out for them and he suddenly hears the words, Jesus is watching you. He's very startled, looks around for the speaker, can't see anyone, carries on putting things in his bag. Again he hears the soft voice, Jesus is watching you. And this time he sees a parrot in the corner. Oh, who are you, the burglar asks. Moses! The bird replied. Who the heck would call a bird Moses? The man laughed to himself. Dunno, says Moses. I guess the same sort of people who'd name a Rottweiler Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) A weeping woman bursts into her hypnotherapist's office and declares, Doctor, I've been married to my husband for 15 years but I've just had an affair. 
The guilt is killing me. I just want to forget that it ever happened. And the hypnotherapist looked at her and says, What? Again? <laughs> uh, two campers, that was the end of that one, two campers are hiking in the woods when one was bitten on the rear end by a rattlesnake. I'll go into town for a doctor, the other says. He runs 10 miles to a small town and finds the only doctor delivering a baby. I can't leave, the doctor says, but here's what to do. Take a knife, cut a little X where the bite is, suck out the poison and spit it on the ground. And the man ran back to his friend who was lying there writhing in agony. What did the doctor say? The victim cried. He says, the doctor says, you're going to die. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is a psychiatrist. Lenny tells the psychiatrist, every time I get into bed, I think there's somebody under it. Well, says the psychiatrist, I think if you visit me for a few times, I'll be able to cure your fears. What do you charge for a consultation, said Lenny. £200 a visit, he was told. Lenny said he'll think about it. Six months later, he runs into the doctor who asks why he never came back. Lenny said, a a bartender cured me for ten quid. How did he manage to do that, said the doctor. He told me to cut the legs off the bed. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a second one. Doctors again. After a checkup, a doctor asked his patient, is there anything you'd like to discuss? Well, said the patient, I was thinking about getting the vasectomy. That's a big decision. Have you talked it over with your family? Yes, we took a vote and they were in favour, 15 to 2. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Numbers. There's one here. This is from uh, some of the letters sent into the news. Uh, no, have, no, the news quiz on the radio. Uh, this one's from the Manchester Evening News. It said, Police revealed that a woman arrested for shoplifting had a whole salami in her knickers. When asked why, she said it was because she was missing her Italian boyfriend. <laughs> okay. Irish police are being handicapped in the... St- <laughs> sorry, Bri- uh, sorry, Patrick, you should read this one. Said, Irish police... <laughs> I've been handicapped in the search for a stolen van because they cannot issue a description. It's a special branch van and they don't want the public to know what it looks like. (laughs) Very good. Let's raise the tone. Go on then. Right. I'd like to follow on from Roosevelt's For Freedom speech and go forward to March 1954, which was the height of Senator McCarthy's witch hunt against Americans with his perceived idea of perceived communist sympathies. His downfall was largely due to the journalist and broadcaster Ed Murrow, and Murrow's closing lines from a documentary he produced called See It Now ran as follows. The line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. We can deny our heritage and our history but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent. We can deny our heritage and our history, and yes, again, we must not escape responsibility for the result. 
At the end of his programme, Don Hollenbeck, his colleague who was CBS's regular 11pm newscaster, simply said, I want to associate myself with every word just spoken by Ed Morrow. This sparked a smear campaign in the press, particularly in the papers owned by William Randolph Hearst, which eventually led to Hollenbeck's suicide. There's a real climate of terror existing in America at that time, the flames fanned by McCarthy. But Morrow's firm condemnation of the campaign was the beginning of the end for McCarthy and his supporters. And McCarthy, in fact, died of acute hepatitis three years later, by then discredited and hated by many Americans. Ed Morrow was a pioneer in TV news journalism, but he'd also been a very noted war correspondent and broadcaster and was based in London throughout the whole of World War II. He developed a very distinct opening line to all his reports back to the States, emphasising the word this when saying this is London. He also developed a standing ending to all his reports of good night and good luck. He flew on bombing raids, recording over the drone of the engines for later broadcasting of the vivid scenes of battle. Toward the end of the war, he also reported from Buchenwald concentration camp, refusing to apologise to his listeners for the brutal scenes he described. I pray you to believe what I have said about Buchenwald. I have reported what I saw and heard, but only part of it. For most of it, I have no words. If I've offended you by this rather mild account of Buchenwald, I'm not in the least sorry. What have you got? Uh, well, just coming back briefly to um, the Duke of Edinburgh's uh, 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 famous gaffes, uh, just a couple, just, just finish off that, that section of it. Uh, he, um, he, he visited uh, uh, in 2012, I think it was, uh, a Bangladeshi youth club, and he walked in saying, so who's on drugs here? And <laughs> what the response was, <laughs> would be startling, okay. Um, and he asked the Scottish driving instructor in 1995, how do you keep the natives off the booze long enough to pass the test? <laughs> <laughs> so he had, he had his finger on the pulse, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> he? In a speech to the Aircraft Research Association in 2002, he said, if you travel as much as we do, you appreciate less noise and more comfort on board aircraft. Provided you don't travel in something called economy class, which sounds absolutely ghastly. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, he asked a British backpacker who trekked through Papua New Guinea, you managed not to get eaten then? <laughs> <laughs> you got some of the ones you brought with I you? Got it, yeah, I got it, yes, I'm still into my little book of... Uh, Accidents and uh, misfortune, this is more so. And it's Max Bygraves. I want to tell you a sick joke, he says. Hmm. There is no socialised medicine in the United States and a common cold treated by a local GP could cost $200. A broken arm could set you back $1,000. And if you die, well, it could ruin you. <laughs> so before I tell you this story, 
Bear in mind that some doctors in the States can tell exactly how long you're going to be ill just by feeling your wallet. <laughs> a few years ago, I left San Francisco to go to Los Angeles. I rented a car and went on the scenic route along the coast. About 10 miles outside LA, I got a nosebleed. And after using a full box of Kleenex tissues, it still kept bleeding. I was due to make a television appearance on a chat show that same afternoon, so I began to get a little worried. As luck would have it, I spied a large red cross above a sign that said hospital, asking motorists not to honk horns. I drove up to the front door of what looked like a small cottage hospital, and there was a nun seated at the reception desk, and I said, and she said, Hi, I'm Sister Rabinovich. Sister Rabinovich, is that your, are you a real nun? Well, I was in the chorus of Sound and Music for three years, she said. <laughs> she asked me what my name was, and I told her. She wrote it down and said, Next of kin. What do you want my next of kin for? I'm not going to die. Nobody said you were going to die. It's just about time our look changed. I could see I was getting nowhere with this joker, so I said, can I see the doctor? Oh, he wants to see the doctor. We've got a Texan oil millionaire. <laughs> doctor, doctor. She slapped a small brass bell as she said doctor, and a door to the left opened immediately to reveal a replica of Groucho Marx. He was dressed in white, medic, white medic's whites, with a stethoscope around his neck, his eyebrows never seemed to descend, which gave him a permanently surprised look. Have you checked this guy's credentials, he asked the nun. She assured him I was okay. He then gave me a box of tissues and told me wait in a small waiting room. Inside the waiting room was a Coca-Cola machine. I fished for a quarter and put it in the machine, but nothing happened. No bottle of Coke appeared. As it was the only quarter I had, I decided to sit there, stemming the flow of blood with tissues and hoping that Groucho would not be too long. After about another ten minutes, another medic, in whites but without a stethoscope, walked into the waiting room. He fiddled with the machine, took out a bunch of keys, emptied all the quarters into his pocket and offered me a bottle of Coke. He noticed my bloody tissues and said, Got a nosebleed? I said I had. He said, I used to get that, but my wife stopped it in seconds. How'd she do that? I asked. She puts a bottle of ice-cold Coke on the back of my neck. Let's try it. He bent my head forward, put the ice-cold bottle on my neck, and the bleeding stopped immediately. Hey, that's wonderful, I cried. How much do I owe you, Doctor? He seemed as happy as I was. That's all right, he said. You don't owe me anything. Besides, I'm not the Doctor. I'm the Coca-Cola man. I came to fix the machine. <laughs> <laughs> right. A joke. What one to tell? Oh, yeah, a young girl. This is from the Times uh, newspaper, so it must be true. <laughs> a young girl was blown out to sea on a set of inflatable teeth. She was rescued by a man on an inflatable lobster. A Coast Guard spokesman commented, this sort of thing is all too common. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember... I remember this is, I was told this, but this is not, I'm not reading this. I was told this by a, a chap on the Coast Guard. And uh, he said that, um, I can't remember what river it was now, but the tide was out and a, a chap had recently bought a boat and he, he rung them up and said, where's all the water gone? He said, oh, we're just doing some work on the bottom. It'll be back soon. <laughs> <laughs> and another, no, same guy, he, he said another one that... Um, uh, a chap had taken a small boat out and uh, he, he rung up for help from the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard sort of immediately said, what's your position? And the chap said, what do you want to know that for? And he said, well, you know, it's normal for us to ask what your position is. 
He said, well, why? He said, well, what's your position? He said, OK, I'm a director in a small printing firm. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're, well, we're running short of time now. I think I don't know whether any of these biggies... Whether you've got time for more credit for Herefordshire? Probably yeah, two yeah, or well, three minutes? Yeah, well, we can always cut it short. Well, yeah. we can always overgo yeah, it. More, yeah, more credit for Herefordshire. Good old Herefordshire. <clears throat> the peace of the Herefordshire countryside back in 1969 was combined with the noisy antics of two cartoon characters and between those two things provided the inspiration for a musical blockbuster. Yes, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice headed for the seclusion of rural Herefordshire in December 1969. And it did inspire a period of intense creativity. They wrote number after number for what was destined to become Jesus Christ Superstar. In between their work, they enjoyed bracing walks around the countryside and watching lots of Tom and Jerry cartoons on television. Now they're mainly Herefordshire creation, which tells of the immediate events leading up to the crucifixion, was to spark off a controversy that raged throughout the world. Many people backed Rice's claim that if Christ couldn't be taken into the theatre, into the streets and into the fields and into houses, then he had no meaning. He also added... The only original thing about Superstar, though, is the old story told in a new way. If Superstar has any message, it's to bring out the message for people who hadn't previously considered it. But others squirmed over the whole work, accusing Rice and Lloyd Webber of blasphemy. The very concept of staging something about Christ was abhorrent to them. Amazingly, Superstar would never have had the opportunity to sparkle in the pages of entertainment history if Lloyd Webber's initial reaction to the subject had remained the same. But while he was a student at the Royal College of Music, he had a discussion with the vicar of a London church who believed that a musical on Christ was a fantastic idea. But Lloyd Webber said, no, I can't think that would work. It'll be a disaster. It'll never sell. But after the success of their Joseph and Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, there was a change of heart, and they wrote the original single Superstar was released in November 69. It didn't fare well in Britain, but sold in hundreds of thousands in Europe and United States, and eventually they were persuaded to go ahead and pen an album. And Herefordshire lured these songwriters at a time when the opera was no more than an outline form. Lloyd Webber had got a few tunes in mind and Tim Rice had an idea for the plot. So the week before Christmas, the friends booked in at the Stoke Edith House Hotel. The work that was to take the music and the classical worlds by storm rapidly began to take shape. We wrote a lot in that short time. We wrote... Heaven on Their Minds, Everything's All Right. Really, all the third and fourth sides were written there, says Lloyd Webber. Things were never to be the same again for these music pioneers. Then, on a visit to New York, impresario Robert Stigwood was then at the head of a pack of businessmen making offers to them. Tim Rice, Tim Rice remembered, all these people made the mistake of making us and getting us to ring them or sending round a minion. A minion. 
Whereas Robert, he sent round a Cadillac and we zapped round to his place, so of course we liked him best. And so the work, chiefly contrived in the tiny community of Stoke Edith, was soon heading for tumultuous receptions in places as far apart as Toronto, Tulsa and Texas. And eventually, it was even to be broadcast in full on Radio Vatican. (laughs) (laughs) We've got two minutes, gentlemen. Anyone got some more jokes? Yeah, why did the chicken go to the seance? I know this because I gave it to you. (laughs) Yeah, because it wanted to get to the other side. (laughs) You you can ask me because I didn't know. You ask me. Huh? What, what, what about the, do- the zookeeper then who was ordering new animals and began to filling out the form? First he typed two mongoose. That didn't look right, he thought. So he tried two mongoose. Then two mongooses. <laughs> Giving up, he types one mongoose and while you're at it, send another one. <laughs> at the height of a gale, the harbour master radioed a coast guard on the spot and asked him to estimate the wind speed. He replied that he was sorry but he didn't have a gauge. However, if it was any help, the wind has just blown the Land Rover over the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I can just about fit this one, I think. When Azu's gorilla died, the zookeeper hired an actor to don a costume and act like an ape until the zoo could get another one. In the cage, the actors start making faces, swung around, draws a huge crowd, and then he crawls across a partition onto the top of the lion's cage, infuriating the animal. But the actor slips. Sorry, the actor stays in character until he loses his grip and falls into the lion's cage. Terrified, the actor shouts, Help, help, help! Too late. The lion pounced, opened his massive jaws, and whispered, Shut up, do you want to get us both fired? (laughs) Would the congregation please note that the bowl at the back of the church labelled For the Sick (laughs) is for monetary donations only? Anyone else got anything else? Of course, we're just about at the end of time. Not literally. (laughs) There's always the one about the Christians being in the dungeons at the Colosseum, facing the ultimate uh, test of their faith, except for one who was sitting in the corner, quietly sitting away, just not whittling at a piece of wood. And the other turned to him and said, what are you looking so calm and gentle about. I mean, any minute now, we're going to be thrown to the lions. This is the end. This is awful. No problem, he says. No problem at all. What do you mean, no problem? I've been here for days, he said. Well, what's happening? Well, he said, it's quite simple. When you go out there, he said, I stood there and the lion was released and roared and rushed over to me but I rushed up to him he said and whispered in his ear well what do you mean you whispered in his ear how could that help well I simply said to the lion that please don't forget you'll be expected to say a few words after dinner (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm doing this one from memory but uh, you know following yours which has just reminded me of it of course well there's the, uh, I think it was Nero that had some Christians buried up to their neck in sand on the beach. And he could see all their heads going from side to side and he realised that they were singing. So he ordered one of the soldiers to go down and find out what they were singing. 
And he came back and reported they're singing, I do like to be beside the seaside. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's good night from Brian, Patrick, and Terry, and me. And uh, we're going to finish up on, and there's got absolutely no relevance at all to tonight, but I like this song. So here we go. I hope it's going to work. I hope it's going to work. Go on, work. Oh my god. <laughs> Just perfect, the perfect That's your evening. Yeah. Song? <laughs> I like this. It's Hoggy Carmichael. No, I think it's Melissa Etheridge, but Melissa Etheridge. But I, uh, when I checked it on the computer with um, an app, it said it was somebody else. But anyway, it's black velvet. It isn't Hutch either. <laughs> no. <laughs> 